This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African perspective. We're broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Online, it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Joala Nitulo, Wusani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The situation in Guinea's capital, Conakry, uh, remains tense following deadly clashes between opposition protesters and the police. Education, health, social and community development uh, are the biggest beneficiaries of South African Finance Minister's medium-term budget policy statement. In economics, Sudan announces a 15-month emergency economic reform plan. And in sport, South African under-17 women's national team's preparation for the FIFA World Cup in Uruguay on track despite the distractions. But first, let's find out what is happening in the 5 o'clock news with Zwalani. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Clashes between rival clans have killed more than 40 people in two days in the disputed region of northern Somalia. Local officials say clashes began early on Tuesday and continued into Wednesday around remote re- villages rather in the Sul region between militias from rival Darud sub-clans. Most of the casualties were reported in the village of Dume. A traditional leader has called for a ceasefire in the region. The region has been long disputed between the breakaway state of Somaliland and the semi-autonomous Somali state of Putland, whose rival forces last clashed in May, leaving dozens dead. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition will reportedly be allowed to hold a Kinshasa rally on Friday to protest against voting machines they fear will permit fraud in December's key election. The DRC will head to the much-anticipated polls on December 23rd to select his successor to President Joseph Kabila, who has vowed to international pressure this year to step aside after nearly two decades in power. Kabila last month promised at the United Nations the vote would go ahead and that he would take steps to guarantee a credible balance. Election officials say the machines will cut costs and protect against vote rigging. The United States Secret the United States Secret Service is investigating explosive devices sent in the mail to former President Barack Obama and the home of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The devices are thought to be similar to the one sent to the home of billionaire philanthropist George Soros earlier this week. Show and Bryce Pease reports that the Time Warner Center, which houses broadcasters like CNN in New York City, have also just been evacuated. The Secret Service said in a statement that it had intercepted two suspicious packages addressed to Secret Service protectees. The mail devices were addressed to Mrs. Clinton in Westchester County, north of New York City, where she has a home, and a second package was addressed to Mr. Obama in Washington, D.C. The statement says the packages were immediately identified during routine mail screening procedures as potential explosive devices and were appropriately handled as such. 
This, as a suspicious device, has also now led to the evacuation of Time Warner Center, the home of CNN in New York City. The NYPD's bomb squad is on the scene, with reports that a suspicious package has also now been intercepted at the White House, which condemned what it called attempted violent attacks made against Clinton and Obama, labeling them as terrorizing acts and denouncing them as despicable. A final round of peace talks to end the political crisis in Burundi is starting, but the government says it will not attend. The talks in Tanzania are meant to heal the deep divisions that emerged after President Pierre Nkurunziza stood for a controversial third term in 2015. The BBC's Will Ross has the details. The government of Burundi says it's not sending anyone to the peace talks in the Tanzanian town of Arusha because it says October is a month of mourning. A former prime minister was killed in October 1961 and a former president was assassinated during the same month in 1993. But to many Burundians, this is a strange excuse to skip an event which is meant to heal deep political divisions. Just last week, the government accused an opposition leader of organising a plot to kill President Pierre Nkurunziza. Pierre Celestin Dikumana dismissed the accusation as a crude plot to intimidate him. The president says he won't run for office again, but the political crisis remains unresolved. And finally, a Cameroon court has sentenced former opposition presidential candidate and anti-corruption campaigner Akere Mona to a three-year suspended sentence on forgery charges. They are wounded tribal tribunal rather sentenced Mona to three years in prison, uh, suspended for five years in a case involving forgery of his family's inheritance. The verdict could still be overturned by an appeals court and by the Supreme Court. The judgment follows a case brought by Mona's younger sister and a former minister Amatutumuna, who accused him of mismanaging the family inheritance. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. The situation in Guinea's capital, Conakry, remains tense after deadly clashes between opposition protesters and the police uh, escalated. Now, Guinea police fired tear gas on opposition supporters yesterday in the capital, where they staged a rally over disputed February local elections in defiance of a ban. Tensions have been high in the poor West African country since the death on October 16 of a protester during a two-day campaign aimed at bringing Conakry to a standstill. The opposition claims uh, President Alpha Conde's government has reneged on a deal to install new officials elected in the contested February 4th municipal ballot, the first such vote since the end of a military dictatorship a decade ago. Guinean journalist Mohamed Ba has more. Uh, you know, since last February, Tuguinians elected communal councillors. Unfortunately, Tuguinian authorities have taken time to give the results. After several demonstrations, uh, they started giving the results uh, to the account. And the ruling party released that it lot of uh, constituency. They proposed the political agreements. Unfortunately, the authorities of the country did not respect this agreement. By place and opposition demanded a peaceful march, matches, and days did cities but the power did not agree to authorize this yesterday's match. The opposition decided to march to police opposite, and there have been clashes and arrests of the wounded, and a young 18-year-old plumber was shot. 
date was the vehicle of the main opponent, Celo Dalengialo, was hit by a projectile that ran through his windshield and his driver had injured. Now, what is the situation like at the moment, Mohammed, in the capital Conakry? Because we understand authorities have banned further protests in the capital. What is the situation right now? Right now, uh, a precarious calm reigns on the capital, even uh, if the opposition is determined to demonstrate it again today. On Tuesday and the next week, this is uh, what we cannot remember about this crisis. Are the police out in full force monitoring the situation? Yes, this is now the population and the citizens. But uh, starting to, to, to move, starting to move slowly, it's not uh, uh, it's totally, it's uh, it moving to slowly, slowly. And that's Mohamed Ba, Guinean journalist on the line from the capital, Conakry, talking to Kumbero Munzerede. Now, newly appointed South African Finance Minister Tito Mboweni has announced the biggest allocation in the medium-term budget policy statement will be on education, health, social and community development. Bread and cake flour, along with sanitary pads, will be zero-rated as of April 1st, 2019. Mboweni delivered the MTBPS within two weeks since his appointment and uh, re reprioritization of public to support growth and job creation was also top in Mboweni's inaugural mini-budget. To talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by Chief Economist at FNB, Mamiki Matikinga. Ms. Matikinga, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Um, Good evening to you and your listeners. Now, what do you make of the mini-budget speech? Um, I think once again, um, the minister had a very difficult job of uh, delivering a budget uh, at a time where the economy is not growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that revisions were made um, to the growth forecast. So growth has largely disappointed relative to what was anticipated at the beginning of the year. You'll remember that um, the then minister, Nene, had anticipated that GDP would expand by above 1% and um, growth was down by to 0.7% and revised even lower for um, next year and the outer years. Um, so the economy is only expected to grow above 2% only in 2021. Um, so I think that is going to be quite challenging um, over time. And we also saw that revenue has um, surprised on the downside uh, by quite a wide margin, putting a significant amount of pressure on uh, the fiscal matrices. Um, as a result, government debt to GDP has increased um, to 55.8% uh, for this fiscal year, um, and it's only expected to stabilize at 59.6% in 2023. Um, so this is quite a huge divergence from what was um, announced um, in the budget review. So I think just taking guidance from those numbers, um, the, the MTBP is significantly worse than what was anticipated in the budget review in um, February mm. and um, worse than what we had anticipated um, before the minister delivered the speech. Now, do you think the announcement of uh, the additional zero-rated goods will go a long way in providing relief to us as consumers? Definitely. I think in terms of um, 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 uh, supporting um, uh, consumers, I think that will help um, quite a bit. But I think we really need to think about how we um, grow the economy and create more jobs because ultimately um, that's what matters in the long run. 
And what do you make of the reprioritization of funds to stimulate the economy, especially towards infrastructure? So I think, um, once again, the NTPTS provided very little detail as exactly what is going to happen. Um, they did state that money from grants will be allocated to, fisc- um, to, 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 to the infrastructure budget, mm-hmm. but I think we'll get more detail around that um, in the budget review. I don't think anything new was stated in the, in the NTPTS um, relative to what we've heard in the weeks leading up um, to the NTPTS, but I think it was... Uh, quite positive to see that the government didn't lift the fiscal um, the spending ceiling and they actually stuck to their word that mm. they need to just move money around to prioritize um, infrastructure spending. Um, I think that's, a, that's definitely a step um, in the right direction and mm-hmm. definitely one of the positives that we took um, out of the, the, the budget. And what do you make of the fact that uh, the biggest allocation will be on education, health, social and community development? I think these are things that have been uttered um, through 27, the 2017 MTBPS um, in the budget review um, in February this year. So we were anticipating that um, they will make those allocations as promised um, in the in the budget in the budget review. But I think um, what was quite disappointing was that um, the contingency reserve mm. um, in the reprioritization was also um, drawn down. So this is our emergency money essentially. Um, yes. And we saw that this will actually be used to assist state-owned enterprises. And I think given the situation that we're in right now when the economy is underperforming and we have to issue debt to finance uh, the deficit, um, bailing out SOEs I don't think um, is, 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 is um, uh, what is needed currently. All right. Uh, and if, if you were in that position, how would you then structure it? I think that they need to really think about, um, you know, um, selling some of the um, state-owned enterprises yes. uh, because we have seen that um, um, some of them are not working functionally, um, I mean optimally. Um, there have been efforts um, made to improve governance of some of the state-owned enterprises, but I think that the, we have to have a hard conversation about potentially breaking up um, entities like ESCOM, for instance, to separate distribution and transmission and so on. Um, we see in large parts of the world that um, um, South Africa is one of the unique cases where um, the state-owned, state-owned enterprises, which ESCOM, um, distributes and transmits and generates electricity. So I think the, we need to apply our minds as to potentially uh, breaking up um, an entity like that. Now, the minister has highlighted the shortfalls due to low tax revenue collections, right? Mm. And uh, what do we have to say about that? I think that this is a, uh, a reflection of the past um, administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's going to take a bit of time to actually um, solve um, the revenue um, issue. We saw in the budget that actually uh, revenue estimates have been lowered quite significantly. Mm. And I don't think it's an, it's an issue that we say we, we solve, rather, in one budget uh, policy statement. I think it's going to um, to take time um, to rebuild those uh, efficiencies um, um, at SARS and to rebuild trust um, in, in, in the revenue service. And what would you say are the optimism levels in terms of um, it, within the finance uh, you know, circles in South Africa since the announcement of Tito Mboweni as the finance minister? Uh, well, I think the announcement was received quite well um, given his uh, credentials. Yes. Uh, but I would say the budget in itself is not received well by the market, particularly if we look at where the RAND is currently. I think just before um, the statement, the RAND was trading at 1420. Hmm. We're now around 1450. So it is quite uh, that the budget, I think, on balance was quite um, 
disappointing, as I said, and it was significantly worse than what we had anticipated, and I think most of market participants had anticipated going in to the budget reviews. I think maybe in the February budget we'll probably get a little bit more detail mm. um, around um, some of the, the initiatives announced today and the reprioritization of expenditure. And I think um, on balance, really, um, um, on the policy front, we're not really seeing anything that suggests that we could potentially grow at around 3%. Um, I mean, the target set in the MTBPS today was for, uh, for us to expand by 2.3%, and we know that's not enough, mm. um, especially if we want to create jobs. All right, and what would you say are the biggest challenges that lie ahead, uh, especially considering the current economic climate? Um, I would say navigating through the uncertainty, um, particularly if we look at what's happening uh, globally with expectations of a, um, a, a slowdown in, in economic growth. Mm. Um, and I think um, the, the, the challenge, again, going into next year will potentially be um, navigating through the elections next year. So we are concerned about whether the right thing will be done before um, or after um, uh, the elections. I think the government has um, done quite a bit in terms of uh, policy certainty, particularly if one um, looks at um, the mining charter, but there's still concerns around um, land reform, so we need to see more certainty around that. It was quite pleasing to see that they have set deadlines in terms of some of the infrastructure pr- uh, plans, uh, broadband um, specifically, they have set a deadline and they have said in the budget today that um, they expect um, sort of licenses to be issued, I think, in the second quarter of um, next year. So I would say navigating through um, economic growth that has disappointed on a number of occasions. I think um, the private participants um, in the market as well as our National Treasury over the past couple of years, we've been disappointed by quite a quite a margin in terms of um, our growth expectations versus the actual um, outcomes. I think that would be the biggest challenge and um, ensuring policy statement going into an election year as well um, is going to be a bit of a challenge. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the line and breaking it down for us uh, as the, the public uh, so we can understand what the budget means to us uh, in terms that we can understand. And that is Umamiki Matikinga, Chief Economist at FNB. And hopefully uh, we'll be having a different conversation after the next budget speech. Right now the time is 17.18. You are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Humanity, Women in Unity the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today is South Africa's High Commissioner to New Zealand, Uyeswa Tulelo. Be sure to join Channel Africa at 10 o'clock Central African time on Thursday, the 23rd of this month, for this interesting episode of Womanity, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. In the East African region, Rwanda and Ethiopia lead the way in terms of women's representation in opposition in positions of leadership. Now, while their neighbors have made strides in closing the gender gap, it is still a man's world. Sarah Kimani reports. 
In August this year, Kenyan women members of parliament staged a white headscarves protest to demand that the August House expedites the passing of a law which seeks to reduce gender imbalances in the country's leadership positions. Under the 2010 Kenyan constitution, not more than two-thirds of elective public bodies shall be of one gender. Cecily Marire is a member of parliament in Kenya. We come in peace to let this house and the nation know that it is eight years and we are asking, requesting humbly that that legislative proposal be considered and passed on this floor. President Uhuru Kenyatta's current 21-member cabinet has only six women. The situation is different in Rwanda and Ethiopia, where President Paul Kagame and Prime Minister Dr. Abiy Mohamed's cabinet are made up of 50% women. In Rwanda, women make up 61% of members of parliament. According to the 2017 Global Gender Report, produced by the World Economic Forum, Rwanda is the only African country ranked top 10 among countries that have closed the gender gap. Opinion on the streets of Nairobi is varied on how Africa can have more women in positions of leadership. Some strongly feel big strides have been made in making the continent more equal. I think uh, the problem is that uh, the, their capability is still doubted. And, uh, but uh, I think it is not true because if you go to the class in every, at every level you find women doing well. I'm not enlightened. Some have the fear to go for those leadership positions. Put this image in our mind that men should lead, like ladies, which is there to maybe support poverty because women don't own properties. Women don't have rights. Rights of women are lesser human rights, quote unquote. So really, with nothing in your hands, we know what campaign entails. For example, you know hiring vehicles, security, that kind of thing. And probably women do not have that financial muscle. So probably these are some of the challenges that have led us to be where we are today. I think they can work for it, not just sitting and waiting there to be nominated. An increase in the number of women members of parliament or in leadership positions has helped some African countries come up with more gender-sensitive policies. But, if the, bat but the battle is far from one. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Business fraternity gathered for the fifth edition of uh, the South Africa-Italy summit entitled Africa-Europe CEO Dialogue in Johannesburg, South Africa. The summit sought to create an active and growing community encompassing relevant regional organizations, European and South African companies. It also fostered cross-national uh, business engagement and investment relations. More from Tseke Kadimeng, founder of the Mopong Investment Holdings. The summit started in 2014. Um, we started in Cape Town on the 2014 and the 2015 edition, whereby um, I think our intention is to bring in um, global leaders from business and government and civil society together to discuss a number of um, economic programs which can be implemented both countries, Italy and South Africa, to try and build up um, trade, to try and build up, um, you know, a sort of a relationship between the two countries. What would you say are some of the advances that have been made since the inception of the summit? I think the, the most is really by looking at the trade figures, um, uh, because we, this is an economic summit where we 
building up we our intention is to make sure that trade between both countries goes up so um, the trade figures have risen and um, you know yet they've stayed where they are but the other important um, issue really it's the Italy now in South Africa for instance it's being taken in because um, South Africa has a, a historical relationship with Italy more specifically with um, one region in Italy which is the first region which recognizes the ANC in the 70s when ANC was still sort of thought of as a um, terrorist organization so um, Umbrio region realized that this is um, you know they're fighting for a good cause and recognize them and we have quite a lot of archives which are sitting there in Italy and most of um, the people here don't know the same region has got a, um, a what they call it Umbrio way of education which is a childhood development um, education program which will be relevant to South Africa it's been tested globally it's been adopted globally and quite a lot of um, our schools, especially in Gauteng, are starting to adopt that. On an area of uh, trade, the automotive sector, we've seen quite a number of advances whereby the Italian companies are now working with um, small South African companies to be part of the global value chain to supply the big uh, automotive sector with parts and various other components. So today is the second and last day of the summit. What issues were you tackling this time around? I think today um, you know, we started in the morning with tourism, um, uh, which we discussed obviously how to bring in tourism from uh, the share of 3.2% to a much bigger share of uh, the world uh, tourism sector in Africa. Um, uh, right now we'll be looking at smart technology and how we can use um, sort of smart technology. You know the fourth industrial revolution is the big topic um, globally now and, and that's what we'll be discussing. And then the last topic really will be dealing with um, cooperation among our educational in- institutions, especially the universities, in developing the, um, you know, the knowledge between Europe and South Africa. And I see here the event is dubbed the Johannesburg Gauteng South Africa Italy Summit. But there's delegates from other European countries and other African countries. Why is it so important, you know, to involve everybody within these two continents and not just focus on South Africa and Italy? I think our main, uh, when we studied, we we said to ourselves that this is a sub-Saharan Africa region with Italy and Europe. Um, because obviously it's a much bigger pool than what it is. Uh, we obviously um grateful for the Gauteng province for having hosted us for these three uh, sessions since uh, 2016. And because of that, you know, we owe it to them to bring them to the party as well. But really our main thrust is that this is a sub-Saharan uh, region together with Europe, not just um, a provincial summit. And that was Tseke Nkadimeng, founder of the Mopong Investment Holdings, speaking to Ntlantla Matlangu.
Palestine, Egypt and Morocco are part of Arab nations participating in the Arab Cultural Week underway in Pretoria, South Africa. Now the event is a mix of Arab cultures showcasing the food, fashion and music amongst others. The Southern African Nations Department of Arts and Culture in collaboration with the Council of Arab Ambassadors representing states and members of the Arab League are hosting this week for the second time. Now the first one was held in 2010 and the event is organized in celebration of the centenary of Nelson Mandela and Al-Quads the capital of Arab culture. More from representative at the Palestinian embassy, Hassona Haldramli. Actually, what we are doing right now, it's an initiative by the Arab Council ambassador in Pretoria in celebration of the centenary of Nelson Mandela and in conjunction with Al-Quds, the capital of the Arab city. The embassy, Palestinian ambassador, he is the chairperson of the Committee of Cultural and Media of the Arab Council. And we are organizing one week of uh, activities. First uh, day was the opening, uh, 22nd of October. We had five uh, countries they performed at that day. We have Sudan, we have Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Egypt, and Morocco. Yesterday, it was uh, the second day of Arab uh, cultural activity. We had film festivals. And today, we have a poetry evening, as well as cultural performance. Tomorrow we'll have 16 countries who are uh, participating in our exhibition. And after tomorrow, which is the, the closing, we have fashion show. We have also a cultural performance and food festival. That's what, what we are organizing and that's what will happen during this week. And what is the importance of you sharing the culture with the South Africans? You know, as Arab nation, we believe that the cultural activity during the Islamic cultural activities, we can build bridges of cooperation in our nation. And the relationship between Arab nation and Africa is not, it's not, it's not only a current relation, it's a geographic relation and historical relation. As you know, we have many Arab countries who are in African continent. And it's very important for us as an Arab to show the South African people a different kind of art of culture, you know, kind of cooperation, strengthening ties between our, our culture. We need also South African people, you know, uh, to visit our country, you know, to do performance, to, to make cultural exchange, even to have to establish conferences towards strengthening our culture together. Now, in terms of the participants, have they come from different uh, countries? Because I hear you talking about fashion shows, exhibitions, and also performances. Are they from the different Arab uh, nations? We have uh, Sudan. We have a group from Sudan. We have also a group from Saudi Arabia, we have another group from Palestine, we have a group from Morocco, and also we have another last group from Egypt. And that was Hassona Haldramli from the Palestinian Embassy in Pretoria speaking to Tuto Ngobeni. But right now the time is 17.30 Central African time. Let's get a quick update from the news headlines with Zualani. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, clashes between rival clans have killed more than 40 people in two days 
in a disputed region of northern Somalia. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition will reportedly be allowed to hold a Kinshasa rally on Friday to protest against voting machines they fear will permit fraud in December's key election. And finally, the United States Secret Service is investigating explosive devices sent in the mail to former President Barack Obama and the home of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. The United Nations Joint Program on HIV and AIDS, well known as UNAIDS, uh, plays a significant role in addressing the HIV p- epidemic. The Eastern and Southern Africa region is said to be home to 19.4 million people living with HIV, of which 60% were women. As we mark UN Day, we reflect on the work of UNAIDS uh, to end the AIDS epidemic as a public health threat by the year 2030. Joining us on the line is program's uh, country representative for South Africa, Bulawa Mugabe. Mr. Mugabe, thank you very much for joining us on the line. Thank you. Now, firstly, uh, advancing the health of citizens is one of the values of the UN Charter. Let's talk about the role uh, of UNAIDS in, in that regard. Uh, UNAIDS, which is the United Nations Joint Program on HIV, is a a program that brings together efforts and resources of uh, several uh, UN agencies, Hmm. uh, funds and programs, uh, to try to uh, uh, get the world to uh, pay attention to HIV in the quest to making sure that uh, we deal with HIV as a public health threat. Mm-hmm. Now, in Eastern and Southern Africa, although scale up to uh, antiretroviral treatment has led to a reduction in AIDS-related deaths, UNAIDS has acknowledged that significant gaps remain in the HIV fight. Can we reflect on those? Yes, certainly I think progress has been made. Uh, 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 in 2017, we were able to report that, in fact, we have uh, fewer than a million um, people dying from from HIV. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's very clear that uh, while we are making uh, this progress and having about 21 um, million people on treatment, uh, we still have a significant number of people who are actually not uh, accessing treatment. In other words, you know, despite the fact that uh, a number of people are, are no longer dying of, of, of HIV, uh, we are still far from the target that we have set ourselves that we would have less than uh, half a million uh, AIDS-related deaths by 2020. So the, the, the challenge is, 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 much, uh, is, is quite enormous. So the scaling up of uh, treatment uh, has, uh, does not you know, you know, guarantee us uh, success. Mm. Uh, I think we are making progress in this area. For instance, in 2017, again, we reported that uh, in that one single year, we were able to put uh, 2.3 million people uh, on treatment. However, our target, uh, if we are going to meet our target for 2020, which is putting uh, 30 million people on treatment, we need to be putting on an annual basis 2.8 additional people uh, each year on treatment. Wow. So, so, so we, we, we still have a, a long way to go. But I must also say that I think the biggest uh, threat that we have or the biggest crisis that we have 
is around HIV prevention. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been pro- uh, progress uh, since uh, uh, 2010 in terms of the number of new adult infections uh, that are carrying. But again, if you look at the target that we have set ourselves for 2020, uh, which, uh, which requires uh, that we should reduce new infections by, by 75%, we are far, far, far of that target. At the same, I, I can go on and on and on around, for instance, children. We have a, uh, ambitious targets of, uh, you know, reducing and eliminating um, uh, infections among uh, babies uh, during um, birth and uh, breastfeeding. Uh, our target for 2018 is, is, uh, is actually 40,000, and we're, we are far, far from reaching that figure uh, as things stands today. Now, you mentioned uh, the fact that upscaling of treatment uh, has not really had much of a, uh, an impact on the, the infection rate. Uh, and speaking directly to that is the fact that South Africa in particular is lauded for having the largest antiretroviral treatment program globally. However, you know, the country is still recording alarming numbers of new HIV infections. Can we talk about the HIV challenges in this particular country, South Africa? Yeah, let, let me just uh, correct the point that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, you know, uh, treatment has not had any effect. It has an enormous impact. Uh, mm. People are living longer. People, uh, uh, life expectancy has gone up. But the point I was trying to make is that we really need to get, uh, for us to get ahead of this epidemic, we need to deal with uh, new infections. Yes, yes, we no, definitely. We uh, can continuously be adding to, uh, to the pool of already infected uh, uh, people because in the, in the long run this is not sustainable. Now, coming to South Africa specifically, I think you may have, uh, you may be aware that recently the uh, Human Science Research uh, Council released a study that actually shows that there has been quite some progress in, in reducing uh, the number of new infections mm. uh, 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 between 20, 2012 and 2017. Uh, we have had an, uh, a reduction of about 44%. That's quite uh, significant. However, the, you know, the number of new infections really still remain just way too high uh, for us to be able to get a handle of this infection. So we really need to be, uh, to be much more focused on where we need to, to put our efforts. And that study clearly shows that we need to uh, address uh, the issue of adolescent girls and young women. It's an area that needs uh, uh, focused attention that we need to get men uh, not only uh, in prevention program but particularly in treatment program because we know that uh, treatment actually has an impact uh, in, in prevention. Mm-hmm. So the more men we can put on treatment, the more the likelihood, because the viral load will be reduced, yes. we, 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 we will have a better chance of actually uh, uh, making progress uh, in terms of uh, averting new infections. All right. Now, by the look of things, is the region uh, on track to achieve the ambitious goal of ending the AIDS epidemic as a public health threat by 2030? I know we've spoken about uh, the goal for 2020, and uh, I mean, I, I, I'm imagining that that needs to be relooked. But in terms of 2030, how, how are we standing in terms of that? I think it, it, uh, from what I said, I, I think it's very clear that uh, we are at a very um, a precarious point in the history of the, the response. Mm. There has been progress and partial success in saving uh, lives and also in stopping new infections. But this in itself has also, in a way, given uh, um, way to complacency. So we really need to address complacency. Uh, people still know that uh, it's not over age is with us. We need to 
double our efforts in terms of uh, uh, preventing new infections. And if you look at the, the for instance, today we are half half uh, way towards the 2020 targets. Mm. And the pace of progress is not matching the, uh, the global ambition. So we really need to, to pick up the pace. Uh, and, and also, it clearly is a wake-up call that if we're going to meet those targets of 2020, we really have miles to go. So we, we need to put uh, a, a greater effort. And South Africa, as you may have had, uh, has just announced that uh, they will be going for a much more aggressive campaign of putting... Uh, two million additional people on treatment uh, by 2020. And it just shows the, the, the scale of ambition that the country has, has, has defined for itself. So what is actually needed is how can we create demand for people to go for testing, uh, for those that are tested positive to stay on treatment so that they can have their viral load suppressed. All right. Well, thank you very much to, for speaking to us, uh, Mr. Mugabe. We, we hope that uh, your organization will be able to uh, make, uh, continue to make the strides that it's been making towards, uh, you know, ending the the HIV epidemic. And that was uh, Bulawa Mugabe, South African country representative of the United Nations Joint Program on HIV and AIDS, UNAIDS. As the United Nations celebrated some of its milestones on Wednesday, the International Labour Organization says bodies such as the UN have a big role to play in alleviating poverty, inequality and job creation. United Nations Day commemorates the anniversary of the entry into force of the UN Charter in 1945 with the uh, uh, ratification of this founding document by the majority of its signatories, including the five permanent members of the Security Council. The United Nations officially came into being. Meanwhile, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres urged the men and women working for the United Nations to continue tackling the world's many challenges despite growing inequalities. Now, the ILO's Regional Specialist on HIV and AIDS for Africa, Reda Amir, says the organization will continue to provide support and assistance to the mandate and vision of the UN. The ILO, the International Labour Organization, is one of the specialized agencies of the United Nations. So, the main role of the ILO is to promote social justice, and it is internationally recognized as the human and labor rights organizations. And the history of the ILO is that it's, yes, it's a UN agency, but it's older than the UN because it was created uh, in 1919. And it's one of the components of the different set of agencies that exist. So the specificity of the ILO is that it's the only UN agencies that brings together in its governing structure, governments, employers, and workers. And today we have representatives of 187 uh, member states that sit in the ILO. When it comes to the UN, at the country level, ILO is one of the UN agencies, and the ILO strategic document is a contribution to the UN strategic cooperation framework, which is in a nutshell, the UN technical assistance to a government. And do you feel, you know, as an agent of the UN, that the ILO is fulfilling its role in terms of reducing inequalities, 
creating for employment to take place? That's a tough question. Doing enough is, is really something that needs to be defined. The challenge is that we provide technical assistance. So we really take very seriously the issues of inequalities. We mm. are a standard-setting organization, so ILO, such as other UN organizations, we set international standards that have at country level the status of treaty. And when it comes to discriminations, we have two existing ones, the Equal Remuneration Convention, which was a convention that was established since 1951. And the second convention, which is the Convention on Discrimination when it comes to employment and occupation, was a convention that was set in 1958. So through the dialogues with the national with the member states, we determine standards and then we provide advocacy to encourage member states to ratify the conventions. And as soon as they ratify the convention, we provide technical assistance in implementing the convention that then are translated in national legislation. So that's the standard setting approach that we have to, uh, to reducing inequality. Mm. And we have now more than 119 conventions and 200, more than 200 recommendations. The reality is that in some cases, when countries do not feel that they can ratify a conventions, that's where we use another set of standards, which is the recommendations, which basically is based on the dialogue at national level. We propose something that is a tentative action plan. And the purpose is to bring the levels to the level of the ratifications, which then, which then help us to take them to another level. So that's how we're doing at the policy level and advocacy level. But now the interesting part of it is how we translate this into reality, because I can mm. understand that your hiding question is that it changed the life of people. Mm. And it's in the operational modality that we also provide technical assistance at the country level to translate those principles into something that is concrete. And if I can illustrate this in one example, um, in South Africa, we are implementing a project which is the um, expanded public works programs. Mm. All right. Well, it's time for us to find out what is happening with our money. But before we do that, uh, Wisani, uh, we just recently found out about the passing of a an icon in South Africa. Actually, not just in South Africa, uh, Africa as a whole, uh, Jabulani, otherwise known as WHP. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that you have heard about this. How How are you feeling? Uh, it's a sad day for most South Africans and for... Uh, Lovers of music. He, he was a pioneer. He was a legend of um, uh, hip hop music and a bit, a bit of house. And uh, the guy also was very gifted in terms of uh, making music that pleased people. Uh, mm. You'll find that people liked him so much. Whenever he has a there's a concert where he's featuring in, uh, people will buy those tickets to just want to see him. And his songs were very catchy. Uh, you'll find that uh, it reminds people of uh, stages in their lives. Some some people, remind, it reminds them of maybe when they got married, when something monumental, milestones in their lives were happening. I remember uh, this one of uh, Labori. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember staying in Labori, of which course. is just a few few meters from where we're broadcasting from. Yes. So it was uh, a place where I stayed so that I could be next to the uh, broadcast house. Uh, I was about to say on to more depressing news, um, but uh, that wouldn't be appropriate considering that WHP is said to have passed away from depression. But something that does get us very sad as well is, of course, what is happening with our money. And Wisani Matebula is going to tell us what is happening with that just now.
Thanks, Amora. South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni saying this year's public sector wage agreement exceeds the 140 million US dollars budgeted for salary increases and other conditions of service over the next three years. Mboweni was delivering his first medium-term budget policy statement in Parliament. He says departments must carefully manage over time and performance incentives. He says revenue shortfalls would have been larger were it not for increase in personal income and other taxes. But when he says the issue of reducing gov- government headcounts must be approached with sensitivity. We have not allocated additional, man- additional money for this. National and provincial departments will be expected to absorb these costs within their compensation baselines. The wage bill remains the biggest cost pressure on the budget. Over time, wages have crowded out other goods and services and capital investment, particularly in health, education and defense. Around 85% of the increase in the wage bill is due to higher wages rather than headcount increases. Finance Minister Tito Mboweni has announced measures to improve governance in state-owned enterprises. Mboweni says government is working on a plan to restructure the electricity sector and power utility ESCOM. According to Mboweni, the reconfiguration of parastatals and closure of some is also on the cards. There has to be a reconfiguration of state-owned companies. There's a lot that's contained in the terminology of reconfiguration of state-owned enterprises. It means, amongst others, that we should be open-minded about inviting either equity partners or uh, be open to closure of some business activities, restart if needs be. Uh, Namibia's economy will contract 0.2% this year, down from a forecast of 1% growth in July due to a weak uh, performance in the manufacturing and construction sectors. Namibia's economy should grow by almost a percent next year. The Southern African country's budget deficit will be maintained at no more than 4.4% of the GDP in 2019 and 2020 financial year. And Egypt is looking to issue foreign currency-denominated bonds late this year. Or early in 2019, Egypt borrowed heavily from abroad since it began an IMF-backed economic reform program in late 2016. Facing a tough foreign repayment schedule over the next two years, as well as a rising oil import bill, the North African country is trying to expand its investor base, lengthen the maturity of its debt, and borrow more cheaply. Financial indicators at the dollar trading at 10.5 Botswana Pula, and 11.60 Zambian Kwacha. In your BRICS currencies, the dollar is at 3.69 Brazilian real, 6.535 Indian uh, Russian ruble, 7.338 Indian rupee, 6.94 Chinese yuan, and at 14.32 South African rands. It's also at uh, 77 pairs to the pre- British pound and 87 cents against the euro. The commodities market, we've got gold at $1,232, uh, platinum $833 per fan ounce, Brent crude oil $76.80 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Seventeen fifty, let's find out what's happening in the world of sport with Musibudi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with local football news. Now, the first round of the 2018-2019 Soweto Derby Absa Premiership match is just around the corner. There are always high expectations when Orlando Pirates clash against Kaza Chiefs. Now, with the match, um, tickets sold out with just over a week before the Saturday encounter at the FNB Stadium. Amakosi are hoping to come out victorious. Chiefs captain Itumilengune says they are eager for their first derby win in four years. It's not nice to know that the last time we won in the garden was breaking the importance. Now we're in 2018 and it's been like four years without a victory against our rivals. But uh, Saturday is going to be a different ball game and we have to turn it around and go for the victory. We, we, we believe in ourselves, we believe in our supporters, they will come and rally behind the team. And then all you have to do is just to, to get them the results and put smiles on their faces. Now, Chiefs head coach Giovanni Solinas has admitted that it will not be an easy match, but they are looking forward to a wonderful spectacle. Special game. Uh, this derby in South Africa, particularly, is uh, the biggest uh, second event in South Africa. So, you can imagine the very important uh, event is the derby between uh, Pirates and Chiefs. Oh, maybe to be involved in this uh, event. The derby is special because it's a special game. You can breathe the atmosphere. So it's a privilege <coughs> to be part of this uh, derby. It's a honor, it's a football party. Well, London Pirates head coach, coach uh, Militin Stradojevic uh, says he signed as well prepared for Saturday's Soweto derby. It has been wonderful preparation, especially after passing to Interco Cup, uh, fully aware of that. You could taste, you could smell, you could feel uh, amongst all of us that uh, we are looking towards Saturday to give our best and uh, make our supporters happy. South Africa's under-17 women's national team's preparations for the FIFA World Cup in Uruguay are going well. This despite the distractions with many students writing their final year examinations. The team has been in camp for a while now and will depart for South America on Saturday. It's a very difficult one uh, to work around. You have to take care of it first. There's no working around it. You know, some of the players we couldn't get into camp because uh, they need to make sure they've got their exams right to apply for varsity already because first things first is we say education first. We can't in turn then say, no, a player must make sure they're in camp before taking care of their education side of things. So the biggest thing that we did is that some of the schools have exempted their players. Um, They wrote early. Some of them, the portfolio of evidence already leading up to the World Cup, they've made sure that they are covered for the year. Well, that is Simpio Lulu, head coach of Bantuana, talking about some issues um, affecting the team at this point in time, especially with the um, uh, the students writing exams. And finally, South Africa's doubles tennis partner, or rather tennis star Raven Claussen, has qualified for the year-end ATP finals in London. The ATP confirmed late on Tuesday that Claussen and his New Zealand doubles partner, that is Michael Venus, were the final team to qualify for the prestigious event to be held at the O2 Arena in London from the 11th up until the 18th of November. Now, Klaassen and Venus will make their team debuts at the ATP Finals for the very first season as a pair. The Zion Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Mayome, as well as technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening.